This week on Crossing the Lane Lines. The swimming started as high school swimming. And in Washington, D.C., which is where I started uh, my college swimming, they, they had high school swimming at the Dunbar High School. And, um, and basically, the, um, the swimmers from the Dunbar High School transitioned into Howard University swimming. And basically, that, that was the old swimming. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about from 1916 all the way up through, all the way up through 1930. And uh, then there was then there was the war World War Two, and as you transition from World War Two, going into the late forties, you moved into what I consider to be modern HBCU swimming. If you mention names like Doc Councilman and Mark Spitz, you're probably going to have a number of people in the swim community that have heard of them. Powerhouse swim programs like Indiana University and the University of Texas would be familiar to many who follow swimming as well. But what about the names like Clarence Pendleton or Malachi Cunningham and swim programs from historically black colleges like Howard University or Morgan State? Would these names be on anyone's radar? We'll speak to researcher, swim coach, and former competitive swimmer Kevin Colquitt about the forgotten names of elite black swimming in the collegiate ranks from as far back as the 1940s and his determination to educate the public about these amazing swimmers and institutions. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. I've been a part of many discussions about the rich history of swimming on the collegiate level. Swimming legends like Mark Spitz and Dara Torres have often entered the conversation. Also, college coaching legends such as Bill Boomer and Doc Councilman have come up. And no analysis would be complete if you didn't mention the rich swimming history of the University of Texas, Stanford, Auburn, or North Carolina State. But what I never hear spoken of are the swim programs of Morgan State, Florida A&M, or Howard University. Further, most people engaging in conversation about collegiate swimming with me would have a difficult time naming a coach like Clarence Penny Pendleton or swimmer Malachi Cunningham. But our guest today has spent tireless hours researching the history of these forgotten collegiate swim traditions, and it is his passion educate future generations about the rich aquatic history of black competitive aquatics. Kevin Colquitt is a former competitive high school swimmer and later swam for four years at Howard University. He is a certified scuba diver and at present he is researching the history of black competitive collegiate swimming, in particular as it relates to the HBCUs. Kevin Colquitt, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you. Kevin, can you talk about how you first got involved in swimming, then later how you got involved in competitive swimming? Um, Najee, I, I'm a Philadelphia swimmer. I was born and raised in Philadelphia. And back in the 1950s, the uh, Philadelphia School District uh, had an aquatic uh, part of their curriculum, especially in the neighborhood schools. And uh, it was set up to be run at a particular um, pool 
and I learned to swim at that pool. That pool was called the Temple Area Community Pool. And um, basically, I got involved. I learned how to swim at the uh, Temple Area Community Pool, and I developed a strong interest and passion for swimming at that pool. And uh, from there, I learned I swam competitively in junior high school, and I swam competitively in high school. And then I moved on to swimming in college, and I swam at Howard University for four years. Most who might have an idea about swimming at HBCUs may only know about Howard University's swimming and diving program, mostly for the fact that it is the last one remaining. However, this was not the only one. Can you talk about the programs at Morgan State and others that existed at one point? Well, Najee, let's talk about the the overall history of of African American swimming in general, because in in a way, the swimming the swimming started as high school swimming, and in Washington D.C., which is where I started uh, my college swimming, they they had high school swimming at the Dunbar High School, and um, and basically. The um, the swimmers from the Dunbar High School transitioned into Howard University swimming, and basically that that was the old swimming. And I'm talking about I'm talking about from 1916 all the way up through all the way up through 1930. And uh, then there was then there was the war World War II, and as you transition from World War II going into the late 40s you moved into what I consider to be modern HBCU swimming. Um, and that is when they started the CIAA. The C originally stood for Colored International uh, Intercollegiate Athletic Association. In the 1950s, it was changed to Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association. So from 1948, which is when the CIAA began, there were there were basically four teams. There was Hampton Institute, there was West Virginia State, there was Howard University, and there was Tennessee State. Those are the teams that that basically constituted the, the foundation of the CIAA swimming. As we went into the 50s, we moved into other schools joining that league. And those schools were Morgan, Johnson C. Smith, North Carolina A&T, and Virginia Union. Now, there was one team that really wanted to be part of that uh, that uh, grouping, and that was Cheney State. In the 1960s, they started to they started to form a team, and uh, it only pretty much ran for about four years. They couldn't get enough people to to um, to form to to basically form the team with. Now that was the CIAA. That was the colored league. And then you move down and you move into the uh the Southern League. There was the SIAC and that's the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. In that conference you had schools like South Carolina State, Tuskegee Institute, Florida A and M, Morehouse, Alabama State, and later um, Albany State. Uh, so that they constituted the um, basically the southern, the southern aspect of 
of the of the swimming league. So you had the CIAA, the NIAC, and then there was what I call the SWAC, which was the Southwestern Conference that Texas Southern was a part of. Now, later they moved into what was called the NBCC, which was the National Black Collegiate Championship, and that was like in the 1970, 1978 period. Now, these were all schools that had, that had formal swim teams, and they basically competed with each other, and some of them, some of them competed with people outside of the league, like we swam against Morgan. I mean, we swam against Morehouse. There was there was a real arch rivalry between Howard and Morehouse back in the mid-1960s. So these teams kind of interlaced, and they swam against each other, and they formally swam in their own leagues. Kevin, talk about some of the challenges for the HBCUs in terms of competing against non-HBCU programs, or were they even allowed to compete against them? Well... When you were dealing with um, the other schools, there were schools, those schools that we swam against, those meets had to be arranged by the coaches. In our case, uh, Clarence Pendleton Jr., which we call affectionately called Penny, uh, he was the one who, who arranged for us to swim against other schools. There were D.C. schools that Howard swam against. We swam against uh, – it wasn't a formal league-type competition. It was more like an exhibition-type meet. But we swam against Catholic University. We swam against Georgetown. We swam against Gallaudet. And those were the D.C. colleges that we swam against. We also moved out of that area, and we swam against schools that were – in Pennsylvania, like Millersville College, Bucknell University, Lacoming College, and we also swam against the uh, Stony Brook College up in Long Island. Um, there was one really fantastic, fun, fun, fun meet that we went that we went to called the uh, Monmouth County Swimming Relay Carnival, and this was a fun day for swimmers because you know all swimmers like to swim on relays. This was a carnival that was that was headquartered in Monmouth, New Jersey, and he brought us up, and, and it was a fun day of swimming, and we swam all relays. The whole meet was just relay swimming. So these were, these were non-HBCU schools, all white, that we swam against. But it was arranged through Clarence Pendleton. And when, when Clarence Pendleton left Howard University, to uh, to move on with his career, um, there were all of that fell apart because there was there was no contact with any of the any of those teams after that, and those contacts just fell apart, and those meets just fell apart, and we didn't swim anymore with those schools. Talk about how challenging it is for you to try to assemble the names and accomplishments of black swimmers. I mean, surely there must be news reports, at least in the black newspapers, um, the yearbooks of HBCUs. How how did you manage to to assemble the information that you have? Well, it starts it starts with it starts with yearbooks and public and uh, and just school publications. Sometimes when you go through yearbooks, most people just go through and they look at just you know basic you know, swim team pictures. 
and uh, take that information down and go with that. That's the foundation. But going through the yearbooks and looking at uh, other special interest things help to kind of round it out a little bit. Um, the newspapers, the area newspapers, is also a great source of information. And um, as well as the school newspapers are a great source of information if they're digitized. In in my in my tenure of doing this, most of that stuff wasn't digitized, and I had to go down to the schools in order to pull that information. Unfortunately, a lot of the information with the CIAA uh, was lost in a fire uh, back in the uh, back in the mid '60s, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of records that were part of CIAA history that are just not available anymore. So basically when I go out to when I go out to work, I basically try to work with this information and then expand on it. And another really good source of of developing this work is to sit down and talk to people who were there during those times. I'm fortunate enough to have people who are still alive that I could talk to and share the experiences with who can give me additional information that may not necessarily be documented in newspapers or school or school yearbooks. You had many swim mentors that did tremendous things for elite black swimmers. I'm wondering if you can speak about some of these coaches and their impact on their schools and swimmers. Well, my first, my first swim teacher, coach, and mentor was uh, Mr. Royal F. Morris. Mr. Morris was a North Philadelphia resident. And uh, he grew up in North Philadelphia. He graduated from Temple University with a degree in physical education. He was the first formal swim instructor for the school district of Philadelphia. Now, what happened was Mr. Morris was was the person who ran Temple Area Community Pool. He was a manager, he was a swim teacher, and he was a swim coach in the uh, afternoon after-school program, which we called the clinic. And after school, when we when we got out of school, we all would go up to the pool, the guys who were interested in swimming, and we had a 20-yard, uh, five-lane pool that we swam in, and and we would basically practice for two hours in that pool. And Mr. Morris would basically coach us in our foundations and swimming and swimming technique in order for us to develop our skills as far as swimming is concerned. Mr. Morris was a fantastic foundational person for me because he gave me ideas and he used to he used to handle the whole pool by himself where today you're dealing with people who are who have assistants. You have an assistant who works two lanes you have another assistant who works the other two lanes, and you have another person who might deal with age group swimming and the lower kids, and they work with a lane. Well, Mr. Morris did it all. And and it's interesting when we sit down and talk about it, it's, uh, it's phenomenal because to have one person 
basically do everything is unheard of. But, you know, in that particular time, he managed to do it all. So that was my first mentor and coach. The second the second one was Clarence Pendleton um, that I told you about. And there was a whole lot of things that he did that really set a tone for our passion for swimming because he was passionate about swimming. And when I went back and did some research on him, I found out some very interesting things that, first of all, his father was an expert swimmer and the first swimming coach of Howard University Swimming back in the mid-1920s. He was also a, a, a very powerful swimmer in, um, in the recreation and recreation system in Baltimore and also in D.C., so Clarence Pendleton came from a real strong swimming family, and he was a real strong swimmer who also went to Dunbar High School. And um, basically, when he came out, he went to Howard University, and he swam for four years and later became the swim coach for Howard University after Thomas Johnson, and um, he coached the, he coached the, uh, the Howard University Sharks for 10 years. Ten phenomenal years, seven of which he had consecutive CIAA titles. So this guy was absolutely phenomenal when it came to coaching, and he had a way with his swimmers that did not demean them but made them basically reach for the best inside of themselves. And it was, he was a tremendous mentor and coach. Then my third was – one of my fellow alumni over at uh, Temporary Community Pool, Mr. Malachi Cunningham, who went to South Carolina State in the early 60s, and he was a big brother figure for me. He was uh, he was the person that was a way shower. So, in being a couple years ahead of us, we all looked we all looked up to him, and we all tried to follow in his footsteps as younger kids looking at an older swimmer. And uh, Malachi later came back to Philadelphia, and he was a physical edu- he was a physical education teacher. He retired, and he established the first black USS US USS swimming team, the uh, Philadelphia Tiger Sharks. And um, he's had some phenomenal successes. He was also one. Of, he was also the first black collegiate uh, swim swim coach. He coached at Temple University women, and he also moved over and coached LaSalle women. So, you know, this guy was phenomenal. This is somebody that I swam with as a kid. Of course, I didn't swim in the same lanes that he swam in because he was older and he was a stronger swimmer, but he was somebody that I looked up to and somebody that I truly wanted to follow. My, uh, My fourth mentor was my best friend and he was also my college uh swim team captain and that's Baxter uh Liscom. We called him Bim. And he forget he what he did is he kind of put his swimming on hold in order to coach us when we didn't have a swim coach. When Penny transitioned and he left, what happened was uh, Bim took over as 
the captain of the team, and also he was the coach. He used to coach our workout sessions and participate too. And then was a New York swimmer. He came from the Bronx River YMCA, and they were a powerhouse in New York as far as as far as swimming is concerned. Those guys were absolutely phenomenal. And he went to uh, he went to the school called the Evander High School, where he was where he was an exceptional swimmer. And it, you know, looking at them and looking at the things that he did set the tone for me to to really kind of um, do exceptional things. When, when he did things that were impossible, you know, I looked at it and said, man, he did that? Wow, I can do that. And I've been I've been I've been carrying that for the last fifty four years. He is he has been he has been an inspiration and a mentor for me, uh, and still is to this day. I want to talk about the impact of municipal pools and how they played a role in serving the black community. What did you discover in your research about these municipal pools? The municipal pools, I feel, is the foundation for uh, swimming and basically grassroots swimming. One of the things that I found is that as the black neighborhoods began to, as as the black neighborhoods began to grow, the, um, the, the white people that were in the neighborhoods that were utilizing the facilities, um, they fled to the suburbs. And as they fled to the suburbs, they basically built other pools out in those particular areas, leaving these municipal pools just there. So we had the pools, but the thing that we didn't have is we didn't have the um, the instructors. We didn't have the the professional lifeguards and the enthusiastic people that were that were necessary to motivate us to um to to want to know how to swim and to want to improve our skills. And as and working from that level and dealing with municipal pools, I think that is is very important to have that. You know, when when those pools were just there, they fell into disrepair. And then there was nobody to fix them. And then what happened is the repair pretty much got compounded, and the next thing you know, the pool is closed because, you know, in essence, it's it becomes poorly served, and that's what happened with as far as the municipal pools municipal pools were concerned. They just kind of they just kind of dropped off because the maintenance was poor. They didn't have that that same level of enthusiasm and drive that was necessary to hold the attention of the young kids that were coming there to learn to swim. As I mentioned earlier, Howard University is now the last HBCU of a swimming and diving program. What, in your opinion, is it going to take for programs to be revived at other schools? The first thing I think that has is in my eyes that has to be looked at is the way that swimming is viewed back in the mid 19 let's say 1930s 1940s 
moving up to 50. Swimming was a requirement in some of the HBCUs, and all of the HBCUs, not some of them, all of them. It was a requirement for graduation. You had, if the, if the school had a pool, you had, to, you had to be able to swim across that pool, either in the deep end, across the deep end, or swim from the shallow end to the deep end, or from the deep end to the shallow end, in order to fulfill your requirement. Uh, it's been in, this, in, the, in the 70s that that requirement has been kind of, kind of disappeared, and it's no longer important to have that skill. I think swimming as a life skill should still be required as uh, a graduation requirement. Um, and basically a life skill because it's a skill that if you have, it can save your life. If you don't have, there's nothing you can do except ground. Um, I also think that the area in dealing with in dealing with swimming overall, swimming I think is monetarized, especially competitive swimming. And it all comes down to a factor of, of you know, how can I either get a scholarship or how can I, um, how can I pay for my education? It becomes a tool, and you have to have a high level of expertise in order to be in that be in that level where your interest can pay for your education. And if we kind of if we kind of shift that a little bit back to having a life skill, having a skill that can save your life, and not necessarily looking at how much money you can make from it, because after you swim in college, there's no professional swimming. There's like there is for basketball or for football or for soccer. Or for tennis, you know, there's 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 no professional swimming arena that you can kind of shift to that you can make a living with. So, basically, as a swimmer, I swim because I love to swim. I love swimming. I have a passion for it, and I think that if we can get back to the point of developing a foundation for the passion of swimming and the joy of swimming, it would go a great deal towards creating a good foundation to develop a strong program to grow competitive swimming in HBCUs. And we're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking to Kevin Colquitt, former competitive high school swimmer and four-year collegiate swimmer at Howard University. He is a swim coach, certified scuba diver, and is currently researching the history and impact of swimming of HBCUs and municipal pools on the black community. Kevin Colquitt, we wish you and your family health and safety during these difficult times in our country, and thank you so much for joining us today on Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you, Najee. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here 
we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines. Signing off.